is a, uh, an important day. This is a week we give ourselves to one of the most important things a Christian can do. So I want you to take your Bible and join me in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. And hey, while you're turning there, I don't want you to miss the fact we did have a great weekend here. You know, our gals won on Friday their quarterfinal game with Arizona Christian 4-0. The guys won on Saturday 2-1 against Menlo. They're both going to the quarterfinals. I think the gals are going down to Vanguard, the soccer team, and the guys are uh, going to Westmont to play Westmont. Big weekend. But hey, there's something that's even bigger than that, perhaps, and that is what happened with our cross-country team in Sacramento. <laughs> Number one, our ladies won their first ever GSAC championship. Number one. Not only did they win it, but their cumulative score was the lowest ever in the history of our institution. They beat Westmont 24 to 47, and cross countries like golf, the lower the score, the better. I think it's the first five places cumulative is what your score is 24 to 47 that is a mammoth victory abigail franken number one michaela Frailchild number two rochelle nelson number three congratulations ladies that's a sport i don't get i don't know why you do it but i'm thankful that you do yeah congratulations and then the guys hey listen to this eight times in a row the men's cross-country team has been the GSAC conference champion. Isn't that exciting? So congratulations. So proud of you. I'm thankful to Zach and Amy and their leadership in the cross-country team. Thankful to Michael Mahoney, who has invested in you both spiritually and personally. You represent us well, and on behalf of the university, we couldn't be prouder. We're excited. We're really excited about all of our athletes, how you represent us, but we're especially grateful for the accomplishment this weekend. So I hope, uh, I hope you'll encourage your classmates for their great accomplishments. Tomorrow's the day of prayer. You saw it. Let me read you some things about prayer, and I'm going to preach on that subject today. But listen to this. This is in a book called part of these comments are in a book called The Force That Shapes the World. The prayers of God's saints are the capital stock in heaven by which Christ carries on his great work upon the earth. The most important lesson we can learn is how to pray. The mightiest successes that come to God's cause are created and carried on by the prayers of God's people. The scriptures say, and Jesus said this when he cleaned up the temple, cleaned it out, my house, my father's house, shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Access to God for all nations, benefit to all peoples through prayer. In the wisdom and purpose of God, God has ordained, please pay attention to this, God shapes the world through prayer. The more praying there is in the world, the better the world will be. And the mightier the forces against evil everywhere. Prayer in one phase of its operation is a disinfectant. It's a preventative. It purifies the air. It destroys the contagion of evil. You know, I ask perhaps what you've been asking, what in the world is going on in our world? Whether it's bullets in Vegas or bullets in Texas. Tragedy after tragedy, the world is a reflection of perhaps the absence of the great means that God has provided to preserve what is right and good. The absence of effectual praying. The effectual fervent prayer, says James, of a righteous man accomplishes much. 
the effectual, the energeo, the prayer that's energized by the Spirit of God, by a man rightly connected to God, not a perfect man, not a perfect gal, but a spiritually connected woman or man has energized capacity to effect global change. A man just like you are, prayed and it did not rain for three and a half years. Elijah prayed again and it rained again. Prayer has power. Prayer puts God in full force in the world. The very life and prosperity of God's cause depends on prayer. One more statement before we look at how to pray. Prayer is God's settled and singular condition to move ahead His Son's kingdom. The believer who is the most highly skilled in prayer will, be the, will do the most for God. Men are to pray, and they are to pray for the advance of God's purposes and God's priorities in the world. We not only seek God because He's worthy to be sought, we seek God because that's how God does what God does in the world today. Listen, God doesn't need us. You understand that. He can do it because He wants to do it. He chooses to include us. He invites us in as co-laborers, joint participators in advancing His glory and advancing His kingdom. When my son was young, I would put him on the garden tractor to mow the grass with me. It was always interesting at the end of the day when we finished mowing, how he would come in and report to his mother, Hey, Mom, I mowed the grass today. Well, the fact is, he sat in my lap as I mowed the grass. It's a little bit like that with prayer. God does it. He invites us into it. And we become global change agents. We have not because we ask not. John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers with regard to prayer, says this, the potency of prayer has subdued the strength of fire. It has bridled the rage of lions. It has hushed anarchy to rest. It's extinguished wars. It's appeased the elements. It's expelled demons. It's burst the chains of death. Prayer has expanded the gates of heaven, assuaged diseases, repelled frauds, rescued cities from destruction. It stayed the sun in its course, arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. Prayer, says Christostom, is an all-efficient panoply, a treasure undiminished, a mine that is never exhausted, a sky unobscured by clouds, a heaven unruffled by the storm. Prayer is the root the fountain, and the mother of a thousand blessings. We have not because we ask not. I wonder what the world would look like today if the church of Jesus Christ were as formidable as we should be and could be in the conviction and in the practice of pursuing the one who is worthy to be sought so that He can do what He wants to do in your life, in your family's life, in our university's life, in our community's life, in our nation's life, in the nations of the world. I wonder what the world could look like if the collective corporate population of the Master's University would decide today I'm going to do what God has asked me to do, to daily seek Him, A, because He's worthy of it, and because we desperately need it. When you pray, Jesus says, pray this way. And housed in the Lord's Prayer are the priorities of God and the reality that we need Him every day. Give us this day our daily bread. The Lord's Prayer is to be a daily priority. When I was in Birmingham as a pastor, 
we started a prayer summit for the spiritual leaders of the city. The first year we had 85 spiritual leaders, pastors, gathered at Chaco Springs and just outside of uh, Birmingham, Alabama for three days, four days really, three nights, spiritual leaders in the city gathered to pray. It was the longest extended prayer time I'd ever been a part of. I have to admit, I had a lot to do, thought about not attending, but the gathering was so interesting to me, I chose to attend. I have to admit that praying in a setting like that, knowing where there's such an extended time that's in front of you, I was distracted. I didn't know how I was going to spend that time. I have to tell you that at the end of that time, those four days and three nights, praying morning, afternoon, and evening, sharing the Lord's Supper every night with those men, I learned something in 1998, the value of extended time in prayer, the value of decompressing, the value of connecting, the value of taking necessary time in a distracted and active world to seek the one who is worthy because he is worthy to be sought and to seek the one I need because I'm desperate if I do not. For 17 years we did that. So impactful was that to the community of Birmingham and an association of pastors was founded to preach, to pray, to plan, to promote the gospel in the city. God does work through prayer, and he unites hearts through prayer. Birmingham is a divided city historically, but we had red and yellow, black and white there, Asian, Caucasian, African-American, United not because of our ethnic background, united because of our common call as children of the living God, seeking the one who is worthy to change our city, to change our world. And in the journey, he changed us. He can do that for you. He wants to do that for you. And he wants to do something through you. I wonder what would happen if tomorrow morning at 9.30, the campus showed up. They showed up to be led in scriptural-based prayer where the Word of God will be opened and you'll pray out of it, where you'll be released to go pray privately after praying corporately, where you'll come back and report what the Spirit of God is prompting through the Word of God. Will you enjoy mutual encouragement? There's value in praying alone. There's super value when you pray collectively and corporately. Tomorrow afternoon, we're going to walk around. I may not do much walking, but you'll be walking. Walking through the campus, praying for our community. You have no idea what prayer can do. You have not because you ask not. And I know, prayer's mysterious. I mean, you pray and nothing seems to happen and you wait a long time. Well, there's a lot going on in the world of prayer. First of all, there's a Father in heaven who knows best both timing and consequence. You've got Daniel chapter 10 where Daniel was praying and it was heard in heaven and for 21 days the messenger of God to effect the work of God was resisted in a world unseen. And it wasn't until Michael, the chief angel, the great prince, the archangel of God, came to assist that the prayer was answered. There's a lot going on in prayer, but don't think that prayer doesn't affect powerful change in the world. We have not because we ask not. So what do you do when you pray? Why do you pray without ceasing? First Thessalonians 5. Well, let me give you the prayer priorities. Let me just highlight some things for you. This is the Sermon on the Mount, you know that. Five, six, and seven, Matthew's Gospel. Jesus sits in authority. And he begins to teach about the kingdom of God. He says, true happiness in the kingdom looks like this, blessed are. True righteousness in the kingdom looks like this, not outward stuff, but inward stuff too. True worship in the kingdom looks like this. That's where we are in chapter six. And true prayer looks like this, verse 5, Matthew, 
6. And when you pray, you're not to be as the hypocrites. So this is true worship in prayer. He's talked about true giving, not to do it in front of men for self-promotion. Verse 5, when you pray, you're not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. That's shameless self-promotion. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. Whatever that gives them, that's all they get. Verse 7, and when you're, or excuse me, verse 6, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. The flip side is private petition, not saint shameless self-promotion. Verse 7, and when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they'll be heard for their many words. So not shameless self-promotion, not vain repetition, private petition, and now purposeful petition. Verse 8, therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him, which is a wonderful statement. You're praying to someone who already knows. Verse 9, the Lord's Prayer. The prayer priority, not shameless self-promotion, not vain repetition, but purposeful petition. Verse 9, pray then in this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day. This is a daily prayer. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Parenthetically, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Why does prayer matter so much? Because God has chosen to work chiefly through prayer. We begin this morning with the rightful recognition and truthful declaration that God has chosen to work chiefly through prayer. Listen to D.L. Moody. I'd rather be able to pray than to be a great preacher. Jesus Christ never taught his disciples how to preach, only how to pray. God has chosen to chiefly work not through spiritual superstars, but purposeful prayers. Not only through faithful preachers, but faithful petitioners. God wants to partner with you for His purposes, for His glory. So how do you pray when you pray? Let me give you some purposes to pursue in prayer. And listen, this is, imagine this, Daniel chapter 6. You remember this, a decree went out. Daniel's at the right hand of the king of the time. Darius the Mede, the Medo-Persian Empire, the ruling sovereign of the day. He's at the right hand. He's at the top of the food chain when it comes to influence. His peers, his competitors don't like it, so they convince the king to create a decree. Anybody who petitions anybody but the king is vulnerable to death. It's the law of the Medes and the Persians. It can't be changed. A decree signed which says, you petition anybody but the earthly king, Darius, you're going to die. The lion's den. Listen to what Daniel 6 says. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered the house, his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees. He continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, praying and giving thanks before God, just as he had done previously. Here's a quick question for you. Why would he risk his influence with the earthly king, penalty of death, to continue to pray? Because he knows what we should know. Daniel knew that his work, God's work, was greater than 
Daniel's potential work with an earthly king. His position at the right hand of the earthly king was not greater than his access to the heavenly king. In other words, if he wanted to have more influence, the priorities was with heaven's king, not earth's king. That's what I hope you understand. With that in mind, consider how God has prescribed that we should pray. Here are the purposeful priorities to pursue in prayer. Whether you do this tomorrow at the day of prayer or you do this privately, these are the things that matter to God. When you pray, pray then in this way. Prayer purpose number one. Pray for the honor of His name. After you acknowledge our Father who art in heaven, the one who sits on heaven's throne, the one who knows everything and can do everything, who is your Father, with confidence and assurance, come to Him and ask Him what He wants you to ask Him. Promote the honor of your name. Hallowed be thy name. Hey, listen, you may not realize this like you should. Most of us don't. God's name matters to God. The third commandment, Exodus 27, you shall not take the name of your Lord God in vain. The word vain is misuse it, empty it. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain, who uses it recklessly, who uses it carelessly. You can profane the name of the Lord according to the Old Testament by committing gross sin when you're identified with the name of God. When you identify as a Christian and you live in a way that contradicts your claim, it profanes his name. Being dishonest, says Leviticus 19, while claiming to be truthful in that name. I swear to the Lord, I swear to God. And to not be truthful is to profane and misuse his name. You misrepresent him, you dishonor him. There was an Israelite really a young man born of an Israelite woman, and his father was an Egyptian. He came into the camp, which he was not supposed to be among the people of God. This is Leviticus 24. He came into the camp, and he got in a fight. He struggled with a man of Israel in the camp, Leviticus 24, 10. Verse 11, and the son of the Israelite woman the one who had the Egyptian father, the one who was where he wasn't supposed to be, doing what he wasn't supposed to do, blasphemed the name, capital N, the name, and cursed. He cursed God. He blasphemed the name. The word blaspheme there means to, to puncture or to pierce, to empty out. It's like God's name is written on a balloon that is to ascend for all to see. And because of his behavior, his mistreatment of the name of God, both in his action and his words, he took the air out of God's glory balloon. What was to honor him, the name, was deflated. I want you to listen to what is said. The Lord God spoke to Moses as a consequence of that. This is Leviticus 24 saying, bring the one who is cursed outside the camp and let all who heard him lay their hands on him, then let all the congregation stone him. You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, if anyone curses his God, then he shall bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. The alien, that's the outsider, as well as the native, the covenant people of Israel, when he blasphemes the name, when he empties it of its glory, its honor, when he deflates it by the way he talks and the way he walks, when he misuses it, he shall be put to death. God, God's name matters to God. And God's name is to be hallowed, hagiadzo. It's to be elevated. It's to be set apart. It's to stand alone. 
Back on the wall there, you see a jersey elevated, 33. That's hallowed. Michael Pemberthy, retired jersey. There it is, raised and elevated. That's what you're praying for. God, I want your name to be set apart like that. I want your name to be honored. I want people to live like it. I want people to act like it. I want people to exalt your name. God's name matters to the people of God. David said, I exalt your name. I proclaim your name. I memorialize your name. This is what you need to do every day. God, honor yourself. Exalt your name. May people sing it, say it. The scriptures say that the evil or the foolish spurn and scorn the name of God. They diss it. Be like someone saying our president's name. There's a whole lot of people who are going to have a certain attitude when they hear that name. That's what people do with God. And what God deserves and desires is that people will hallow his name. They'll honor it. They'll exalt it. God's name matters to God. Listen, institutional names matter to institutions. Brands matter. I was told not long ago of a Division I athletic team that was called to a social media gathering. In other words, they're going to meet to talk about social media because student-athletes are on social media. And the experts came into the room and they described this new software with algorithms that have the ability to filter everything said on public social media, grab it, put it together in a report. So these experts explained what the software could do. And then listen to this. One by one, player by player, they showed the retrieved words, reported actions, the posts that were made on social media, collected over the last five years. All of the vulgar statements, all of the crude remarks, all of the comments for everybody to see, player by player by player. True story. They were unwarned. They were embarrassed. They were said to be traumatized. They were outed. And they said, you can't do this. This is illegal. To which the expert said, oh, no. What you say in public is public. And then they had a vote to see if what was revealed was sufficient cause to keep an athlete or to dismiss an athlete. Because that behavior, that athlete's words and behavior was a reflection on the university. And in the university's mind, and in that team's mind, our name matters to us. Listen, God's name matters to God. How you use it, how you act, how you talk. And in order for that to happen the way that's worthy of one so amazing and glorious for his name to be elevated for all to see. You pray that. God, honor yourself. Pray his name will be honored in your life. Pray his name will be honored with your tongue. Pray his name will be honored in your family. Pray his name will be honored in your church. Pray his name will be honored in our city. Pray the world will recognize God's name. Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 113, 3 and 4. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all the nations. His glory is above all the heavens. God, make your name known. His name stands for who He is. You don't just represent it. You promote it when you pray. Psalm 115, 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us but to your name, give glory. Anybody here follow NASCAR? Yeah, I didn't think so. It's a southern thing, I guess. NASCAR is a racing series. Anybody know the name Dale Earnhardt? Yeah, there you go. What was his number? Three. Dale Earnhardt was one of the most famous NASCAR drivers. He died at Daytona several years ago. His number was three. He was famous. Anybody know who Junior is? Dale Earnhardt 
Jr., his son, is also a NASCAR driver who just retired this year. Do you know what his number is? Nobody knows. 88. Dad had a three, son had 88. When he first came onto the circuit, he was asked, are you going to take your father's number? Are you going to take your father's number? This is what he said, I quote, I won't take what belongs to my dad. He made it famous. He deserves it. I'll take 88. We don't deserve glory. He does. We don't take it. We promote it. Can you say amen? Why doesn't God's name receive the response it is due? It's not because of who he is. It's because he's not promoted the way he is. Number two, the second prayer priority. Not only the honor of his name, but the realization of his reign. Thy kingdom come. That's what we're to pray. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The word for kingdom is taken from Basilea. The word for king and simply means the reign of the king. The kingdom is the domain of the king's rule. This is a prayer for the expansion of the lordship and leadership of the king. Father, expand your worship. Father, expand your lordship and your leadership. This is pursuing God for the purpose that His will might be accomplished. This is pursuing God's purpose that people willfully submit to His perfect and benevolent sovereignty. That the nations will benefit from the perfect rule, God's wise and loving leadership. This is a prayer that pursues the Father's kingly lordship and leadership in our personal life, and in our community life. This will magnify His glory, and it will maximize creation's joy. Look, first of all, it's right for the king to rule. Second of all, it's good for us when he does. Wouldn't you agree with me that one of the greatest challenges in our culture is a lack of leadership? I mean, doesn't it amaze you the kind of things that leaders do in our culture you scratch your head and you go what were you thinking there's a little campaign in our santa clarita community because crime has skyrocketed right here santa clarita has started a campaign campaign saying uh taking back our community that's what it's called why because robbery's up 24 percent larceny up 29 percent grand theft auto up 88 percent arson up 113 percent people are burning stuff down you know how they're approaching this they're petitioning our legislature to reverse decisions that were made that promote crime Propositions, Proposition 57, declassified the following crimes as nonviolent. Hate crimes causing physical injury, assault with a deadly weapon, domestic violence, declassified. Possession of property damage to misdemeanors. Instead, possession of drugs and property damage have been made misdemeanors. The consequences have been diminished. One guy has been arrested 49 times. You look at that and you go, what in the world? You know what in the world? We need leadership we don't have. This prayer is saying, God, you rule. You influence those who are governing and ruling. What would happen if God and his rule is exercised in the world today? Mammoth good. Jeremiah talks about the righteous branch of David who will reign someday, and it says of him, when he reigns, he will reign as king, he will act wisely, he will do justice and righteousness in the land, and Israel will dwell securely. When the messianic king comes to rule, Isaiah chapter 2 says, the people, the nations will come. He will teach them concerning his ways that they may walk in his paths. 
He will judge between the nations. He will render decisions for many peoples. In other words, he'll rule, he'll teach how to work, how to play, how to provide, how to relate, how to love. He'll give profound leadership, the consequence, true justice, and real peace. They'll hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not lift up their sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. When God rules, the world works. I think in part the world is the way the world is because we've forgotten how to petition heaven to make his rule the rule, his kingdom here, his kingdom there, the way the kingdom is here. God's purpose is God's global comprehensive rule over all things on the earth as it is in heaven. Perfect justice, real peace, blessing, security, harmony. It's coming someday when Jesus rules in Jerusalem. But God says, I want you to ask me today to bring my rule to bear on the earth in your world as it is in heaven. The world needs leadership. Invite heaven to provide it. You have not because you ask not. And let me highlight these next three. You're familiar with them. Those two, I'm not so sure that we've thought deeply about. But the third petition, the third prayer priority, turns from God's glory to man's good. Give us, verse 11, this day our daily bread. The third prayer priority to promote is man's physical life. God's purpose involves not only God's glory and reign, but man's good and his gain, his needs. Bread is a symbol for all of man's physical needs. It's a reference to the bread of heaven, the manna that God provided daily. This purpose shifts from God's glory to man's good, and this purpose involves your physical needs. Now listen to me. I recognize we're in the United States of America. We're insulated perhaps from the feeling that I may not live today because I can't eat today. But God knows what we tend to forget. And that is that our very life, moment by moment and day by day, is dependent on Him. You have a catastrophe, whether it's Harvey, Irma, or a fire, you very quickly, or an injury, you very quickly can learn, you know what? I'm vulnerable. What this prayer is meant to say is to remind you that my life is dependent daily on God. The second thing it says is, and the God upon whom my life is dependent has a desire to meet my needs. When you pray for daily bread, clearly the implication is, if you ask, He'll provide. You are more valuable than the sparrows, and He takes care of them. Ask Him, He'll provide it. You have not because you ask not. You physically need what God desires to give. Ask Him daily, provide it. All my physical needs. God has quite a resume, Psalm 104 Verse 10, he sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. Do you know what the psalmist just said? God provides all provision for all nature. And then it goes on to say, verse 14, He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man, so that he, man, may bring forth fruit from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad, so that man may make his face glisten with oil and food which will sustain and satisfy his heart. That's a little glimpse among many glimpses that say the king of everything, our father, has possession of all physical needs. He provides it. He wants to bless. Ask him for it. You need it, and others need it. Give us this day our daily bread implies that we're not only to pray it for ourselves, but we're to pray it for others. 
J.J. Watt, who's an all-pro defensive player for the Houston, Texas, when Harvey came ashore and all of that damage was done in the Houston area, J.J. Watt began asking for money. He raised $37 million for disaster relief. He became a, he was already a popular player. He became a, a celebrity and a hero because he was asking for provisions for the needs of others. He raised millions for the needs of others by asking. You can be an asker. Raising required resources, not just for your needs, but for the needs of those who have a hole in their life, a need in their life that they can't meet. Ask him to feed the hungry. Ask him to provide for the poor. Ask him to provide clean water. We all want to be involved in activity for God. What about praying to God? Fourthly, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. This is the priority of man's relational life. This focuses on man's relationships, first with God and then with one another. Sin ruins everything. That's what a debt is. I have a debt to God. It's a sin. That sin handicaps intimacy and communion with God. Confessing my sin in prayer relieves me of that debt because God forgives. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This prayer is meant to remind us that God is higher than we think and we're lesser than we think. And when the Spirit of God brings conviction in order to restore communion and intimacy with God, there needs to be a confession. Sin ruins everything. It prohibits the chief purpose of all creation, relationship. Relationship with God and relationship with one another. That's why Jesus died, to reconcile so you can have a personal, intimate relationship with God. The greatest person in the universe you have the potential to have relationship with, and if there's sin, that relationship is inhibited. That fellowship is separated. Listen, if you're a child of God, you're always a child of God. He's always your Father. But communion with the Father is a product of right relationship. We have fellowship with the Father when we walk in the light as He is in the light. If we say we have no sin, we're a liar. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We have an advocate with the Father, our high priest, who is the propitiation for us. He's the satisfaction. We can be restored. We haven't lost our relationship. We've lost our intimacy. This is a prayer that says, here's a big prayer to pray tomorrow. God, show me where I fall short, where I'm indebted, and then confess that sin. Forgive me my debts. And God, here's part two. Help me to forgive those who have sinned against me. Here's something you underestimate. To hold someone accountable for a debt owed. An injury, which is what an indebtedness is. It's an injury. If you don't release that debt, the Bible says here in two verses, 14 and 15, neither will your heavenly Father release your debt. It's Matthew 18. You don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. You'll endure the consequences, the separation, the losses, as a consequence of your failure because you're refusing that blessing to someone else. Relationship. You're built for it. God himself verifies it. Sin ruins it. Justice cannot restore it, but forgiveness can. Prayer is the means to forgiveness. Prayer is the means to reconciliation. Forgiveness requires forgiveness. What is freely forgiven must be freely offered. No forgiveness denies forgiveness. No release of debt means no release of debt. Harboring hurt brings hurt. Bitterness is a deadly relational toxin that causes your whole system to go toxic. 
Can you imagine? God wants you reconciled with him and he wants you reconciled with each other. Finally, lead us not the fifth priority. Man's physical life, man's relational life, and man's spiritual life. Verse 13, God do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This purpose, this prayer priority, focuses on our spiritual life. This purpose recognizes we have a vicious and proactive enemy. We have a tempter who goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We are vulnerable. We are weaker than we know. We are needier than we think. This is a prayer request saying, God, keep me out of trouble. Prevent it. Protect me from it. God does not tempt anyone, James chapter 1. This is protect me from temptation. This particular tense of the verb and the negative with it means to prohibit a potential. Don't permit it. Don't allow it. I'm prone to it. The enemy specializes in it. Protect me from it. Why? Because temptation, when temptation conceives, James says, it brings forth death. It brings forth sin, and sin, when it accomplished, brings forth death. Keep me out of trouble. Keep me out of temptation. Proverbs 7, very vivid passage, says the guy who's tempted by the immoral person, when he suddenly follows her, he goes like an ox to the slaughter, like one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know it will cost him his life. Temptation will kill you. This says, keep me out of temptation's way. Listen to Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray, Jesus said, that you enter not into temptation. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. God, help me. Keep me out of trouble. And if I do get in trouble, deliver me from evil. The word deliver means to rescue. It always has to do with acute and severe danger. The word involves fast deliverance. It can be used of rushing water. It's like you're in the current going over the falls. God, rescue me out. Save me. Deliver me. Keep me out. But if I happen to begin it, be in it, save me from it. Rescue me. This is a prayer that says, God, lead us not into temptation. Protect my family, my friends. Protect me. And God, if we get into trouble, and some of us are, this is praying them out of trouble. This purpose recognizes the power of the flesh and the enemy, the potential tragedy and the destruction. It's interesting, the word rescue is in the middle voice, which means do this for yourself. When God rescues me from evil, it's for his glory. It says that he's able, and it honors him. We can get ourselves in trouble and not even realize it. Keep me out of trouble. And if I'm in trouble, rescue me spiritually. A few years ago, actually a decade ago now, Karen and I went to the Hawaiian Islands from Birmingham. We were celebrating an anniversary of another couple. We got to uh, Oahu and we went to the North Shore because back in an old life, I was a body surfer par excellence. Love to body surf, and the North Shore is known for its big waves. So we went in our rental convertible, and I climbed out of the rental car, and I had my Walmart beach shoes on. I was ready to roll, my board shorts. I got walking across the beach, and I was laid, we laid our towels down. I was getting myself ready. There's people out in the surf, surfing and body surfing. The waves were perfect. And I was so excited. I started headed for, heading for the, uh, the water. And I noticed this person coming up from my right, kind of purposeful and aggressive. And an arm was on my shoulder, sir. I turned. It was the lifeguard. 
He said this, I quote, you're not going in, are you? I said, of course I'm going in. No, you're not going in today. I said, they're in. He said, yeah, but you're not going in. I don't really know what gave me away. Was it my golfer's tan or my beach shoes or whatever? I said, isn't this a public park? I'm going in the water. He said, no, you're not going in the water. See those rocks over there? I'm not going to rescue you. You can't survive this tide, this riptide. And he meant it, and apparently he had the authority to do it. So I sat down and sulked. And then eventually I inched my way towards the surf. I hadn't really made up my mind to rebel. I just was checking out the surf. I got up to my knees. The rip current was so strong, it nearly swept me off my feet. I walked back to my beach towel, and my wife was still celebrating the humiliating moment that I had just experienced. <laughs> Actually, all, all of them were. I said, you know, honey, if he hadn't kept me out of the current, he would have had to rescue me from the rocks because that current was much stronger than I thought and it would have gotten me in trouble. He was an instrument to keep me out of danger when I didn't know I was in danger. That's what this prayer request does. God, keep me out of trouble. Ever been interrupted on the way to foolishness? Headed to a bad decision? God closes a door? Could be because somebody is praying for you. Maybe we could keep each other out of trouble. Maybe we could rescue some people in trouble, not because we are confronting, but because we're praying. You have not because you ask not. And yours is the kingdom and the glory forever. You have it. You deserve it. You can do it. Make me a part of it. Can God's people say amen? When you pray, pray then in this way. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for the privilege of preaching. You know how to rescue the righteous. You know how to promote your purposes through us. We pray in Jesus' name that you will use us, you will transform us, you will make us change agents. May we become prayers in a way that honors you and changes the world. Do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Our Father, who art in heaven, in Jesus' name I pray.